Welcome to Return of the Hack, the discussion series that brings you cyber stories behind the technology. I'm Neil Langridge, your host, and today I was joined by Dave Barnett of Cloudflare. We look at business email compromise, how it's evolved, and the role people play in its cyber defences, and the development of cloud cybersecurity. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to the first in our new series. Um, I'm here talking to Dave Barnett from uh, Cloudflare. Lovely for you to join us here today, Dave. You know what? It's great. I feel like I've kind of come home because... 26 years ago when I started my career in IT, I started it with E92, actually. Uh, Electronics 1992 plus, it was called at the time. There we go. Okay, and that'll be, a, that'll be a little secret Easter egg that we'll leave for one later in the series and maybe a prize for anybody that can guess what E92, you know, how, how the name came about and what it all, what it all stands for completely. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, lovely to have you back joining us. So, um, if you want to kind of give a little bit of background about yourself and, and what you're doing at the moment with Cloudflare. Yeah, sure. So, I, you know, as I say, I started 26 years ago, and at the time, it was all around connectivity and getting machines to talk to each other. And then, kind of, as we kind of moved into sort of 2005, 2010, my career migrated towards security because it was kind of apparent in the industry that, you know, networks having connectivity is one thing, but securing them is kind of important. So, organizations like McAfee, which I then went to work for, and, um, and some of the PKI vendors that I sort of later followed up with. Uh, and then I went to work for Semantic, which was around consolidation. So trying to, you know, drive cost out at the time uh, and, and try to, you know, deliver more sort of joined up security. Uh, I then went to work as a, as a CTO, regional CTO at Semantic and did an awful lot of work with academia. And actually, by crane to fame, is I was one of the co-authors of the first cybersecurity, uh, one of the first cybersecurity standards globally. Past oh, yeah. Five, five, yeah. That, that's really cool. And then I kind of got back into security. I went and worked for Zscaler. I was one of the early, um, early employees at Zscaler where we were trying to convince people that security could be delivered from the cloud. And ever since, I've really been involved in cloud security and data governance and stuff like that. So uh, I now today uh, I have the honor of um, uh, leading the, uh, the uh, SASE uh, and email security, security practice at uh, Cloudflare. So we've got some uh, wonderful colleagues that are really kind of experts in that area. Um, you know, in terms of uh, network, network security and email security. Yeah, that's fantastic. So interesting on the, the certification. So does that mean that lots of people kind of have your name as being someone who's helped save them and get them through stuff? Or in <laughs> terms of like, this guy made me kind of, you know, hit all these boxes and, and go against all these targets? Probably a little bit of both. A, bit, a little bit of both. But, you know, um, we... I'm a bit of a magpie. I pick things up as I go along. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing what customers tell me. And it's amazing to, to watch the way that customers have migrated to the cloud and way that security's played a much higher prominence um, in their sort of thinking, really, over time. And it's been quite an honour, really. So I've done a bit, you do a bit of retrospection when you're 50. You know, you kind of look back and go, you know, how's it all gone? And... Um, yeah, I haven't. I've got no regrets. I've also uh, every single day I've learned something from somebody, which is kind of to my benefit. And I think definitely with security, and you can tell by the different areas you've been in, it doesn't stop moving. It doesn't stop changing any time. In terms of not just the the threat landscape, which you know can we we can all talk about, and all the the changes and, and evolving challenges there, but also it's the same in terms of the fundamental technology everybody's using. Although it does move a little bit in circles. Um, you know, there's many times when we're talking about thin client computing, and I do want to 
I think we had mainframes and dumb terminals. I'm fairly sure, you know, that's what we had. But there's a there's definitely a circular nature to it. But it is constantly, constantly evolving. And I suppose cloud security is now getting to that place where it is just security to an extent in terms of I think there can be few organizations that don't have that as part of their strategy or their, their current deployment um, and infrastructure already. I think security just needs to get out of the way and let people do what they want to do. But it's funny when you should mention it, Neil, because, you know, when, when I first started out with you know, like 2 Plus, we were, we were trying to con connect terminals to mainframes or a yeah. terminal on a, on a PC to a mainframe. And then, of course, it became, you know, client server. So we were collecting virtual uh, people on desktops to virtual machines in a data center somewhere. And now it's connecting people on mobile devices or, or whatever they choose to be to cloud services. And it's kind of like bouncing backwards and forwards. And that whole cyclical nature, I completely agree with you. Um, but the way that businesses are looking at risk has changed, though, because when it was stuff that they owned, like the, the PC that, well, when I worked for E92, right? So when the PC that E92 provided me or the network that E92 plus put me on, because I couldn't use it anywhere else, so the data center that E92 owned, everything was owned by the, and, and controlled. And that was pretty cool because then you could measure risk by, you know, the vulnerability of the device, by the threat that's affecting the vulnerability, and by the value of the device. So if it's the CEO Makesh Gupta's uh, PC, and um, it's an old version of Office 365, or old, sorry, old version of Windows as it was then, and there was an active virus that was attacking, you knew that was the one you had to fix. Yeah. But the problem is when it's a mobile device over a public internet, to a cloud application that at best you've got a contract with, if worse, you probably don't know. That's the difficulty. And, and that's why the whole thing has shifted towards understanding uh, what is the behavior of the user, what is the data, and uh, what's the cloud application they're using. And that's yeah. how cloud security risk has, has evolved, in my view. Yeah, and I think ownership is kind of like a key point. You could own that network, you could own everything, whereas now you don't own the network. You probably, as you mentioned, BYD, you don't own the device, you don't own the network. I'm... You know, I'm currently working from home, so, you know, E92 doesn't own my router um, that was kindly provided by the ISP and I'm, I'm sure has various levels of security on it. Um, but they, and also the whole definition of the cloud, that you know, we don't own our own clouds. And there is, you know, it's kind of baked into the, the, the kind of model of public cloud that I think it's easy to forget about the, the entire uh, concept of shared responsibility, which I think... I think is one of the kind of most easily forgotten parts of cloud security and, and forgetting that actually that it is all shared and you do need to own some of it, but we all need to own different parts of it ourselves in, in very different ways. Actually, shared security responsibility model is one I'm a mad fan of, but let me put it this way, right? I'm 50, I'm, 50, I'm 45 right now. Yeah, uh, we'll go with it. <laughs> the way my movie plays out in the next 10 years is, uh, is two two endings one is i die which is not desirable or the second one is i retire which is what i want to do so i want to retire when i'm 60 right that's a fair reasonable time to, to retire not a great time to die i must say but i want a economy that is 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 buoyant i want my shares in my pensions and everything to be worth something i want my country to be successful and in order to be successful I cannot um, bestow the sins of me and my fathers upon the, the people that are generating wealth right now. Now, the castle and moat approach that we've loved, right? You know, putting data centers over here, having people connect to them over links that you own, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't work because CISOs have told, no matter how many uh, independent surveys, CyberEdge, IBM, Verizon, they told them it's not working. According to the CyberEdge 2022 report, 
there is a between a seven in ten and a nine in ten chance that they that CISOs have said that they were successfully compromised last year. Now, I don't know about you, Neil, but if you're living in a neighborhood where nine out of ten of your neighbors get attacked successfully, they get broken into. You know, I'm not going to be doing what they're doing. No. I'm going to do something different. So to enable our wonderful digital artisans of today, the people that are out there generating wealth so that my pension fund is worth something, we need to be helping them get getting security out of the way and making it simple. Now, there are a few very simple things we can do to do that. And those are starting to emerge. Things like zero trust. And what we're here to talk about now today is anti-phishing and email security. Yeah, absolutely. And and putting the user at the at the at the core of that, I think, is is central. You know, it's such cliche about users being at the, the front line of security, um, but you know, kind of also being the first to get blamed as well. But also, you know, they're pivotal in terms of thinking about um, thinking about them not just as users or as numbers or as somebody at the control of an endpoint. They are just people, and and it's people that are fundamental to productivity. To, to all of these organizations being successful and how we measure security is not just being effective, but also, as you quite rightly say, enabling productivity and not being another thing for people to curse that stops them being able to do their job effectively. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, my, my mother, um, it, bless her, 10 years ago, she asked me what I did for a living. And I say I help secure companies and help stop cyber threats and risk. And she was like, I don't, yeah, thanks, Dave. And, and a few hours later, I heard her saying to her friends on the phone, I'm not entirely sure what Dave does, but I think it's something about stopping people from stealing computers. And I'm like, OK, that, that's I, I love you, mum. You're, you're, you're 70 years old. You don't you know, if that's your world. Then that's cool with me. But during COVID, my mother, I sent her an iPad and she's confident using that iPad now. So 10 years on, she's comfortable with it. Being, you know, with using technology, she, it's not scary for her. Okay, I had to tell her how to tap properly rather than just pushing yeah. it like a doorbell. Push it like a doorbell. It's a very good tip. When it, if you're an 80 year old mother, tell her to push the like a door. But security just happens in the background, right? She doesn't have to worry about it because it's a secure environment for what she needs to do. And that's the beautiful thing, right? We need to come to them. We can't start. To, yeah. I can't tell Neil Landridge that you have to work in a certain place or use a certain device because. Why should I? I haven't got the right to do that. I shouldn't have to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also kind of empowering people to think positively about it and not and not and not guilt as well. I think, you know, I think we've seen plenty of businesses in the past and that's where we come on to like, you know, what does what does good look like? How can we we kind of position and frame security in the right way that people think about it positively as being good for their lives? too often it is just seen as as being a being a negative and especially when you kind of get into that blame culture you know again kind of like fishing uh training programs that have gone wrong in, and we've seen this a lot over over covid of the need to be able to do this mm. but positioning in a way of oh you failed this you did this wrong and therefore you're being made to look stupid or even tricking people into into getting involved in security which uh, you know and, uh, one of the things i feel that's most important is building a positive security culture mm. Um, which is a challenge with everybody being remote, but but by building a positive security culture, that's how you get everybody on board through the medium of, of behavior rather than just technology. Because if it's technology alone, it's not going to work. I completely agree with you. And, you know, IT for so long has been seen as the, you know, the it crowd, you know, the, the people who are downstairs and they're kind of just telling people what to do. It's like they need to be seen as the innovating together crowd. They need to be absolutely a positive message. I mean, 
here at um, Cloudflare, we were there was a, a Twilio attack. It was, it was a it was an SMS smishing attack that happened, uh, and three people fell for it within our company. You know, and it, there's a blog post all about it and what happened. And the thing is, they reported it without fear. And the the reason they could report it without fear is because our culture is a we don't blame people for being people. You know, I want people to click things. You know, I, I don't want to teach people to be wary about everything. So the, if you look at, if you think about the artisans of the last few hundred years, they produced great things, paintings, art, music, whatever, because they've chosen their own tools and because they've kept those tools clean. And that's our job is to keep the tools clean and to give people choice. But you know, the, the number one tool that people use and has been for a long time since I was working at United Two is email. Yeah. And, you know, Bill Gates, I think, was famous for saying, you know, that he felt that the spam problem would be over and done with, you know, by, I don't know, whenever, 1995 or 2000 yeah. or whatever. The spam wasn't yeah. done with. But when I was at, when I was at uh, United 2, that's when the email hygiene world started to happen. And the spam was the first thing that people started to uh, solve. Um, so, you know, let's catch that nasty spam. And that, unfortunately, has evolved into where we are with email hygiene right now, which most of the mainstream email vendors are still based upon character matching. You know, does it look like something we've seen before? Yeah. Um, which is kind of part of the problem because people are relying on stuff that just doesn't work anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of kind of where you're where you're seeing at the moment, so I think we've seen plenty of numbers in terms of that that rise in rise in phishing. And well, it's not just phishing. It's as you say, it's it's smishing. If it's coming over, it's coming over text. We've seen a huge rise of that both in the consumer space in terms of people, whether it's COVID vaccinations or whether it's mm -hmm. delivery notifications. But obviously, definitely seeing at work, um, you know, an, an attempt to be able to to you know whether it's transferring money or whether it's kind of just getting access to people's machines or just starting that engagement that engagement thing we're definitely seeing a, a big increase um kind of at the, at, at the moment what are the kind of in terms of how are the techniques evolving that you're the uh, cloudflare that you're seeing in terms of kind of you know the the tactics that uh, that bad actors are using well i mean what we're seeing is reflected with what verizon have seen in their data breach investigations report 2022 which is the fact that social engineering against human beings has gone through the roof um and, and you know it's because we're living our lives online you know we're putting more information every day on online so you know if you look at a typical um spear phishing business email compromise phishing whatever they're all they've all got a, um, a reconnaissance phase at the start and that's mapped over into the mitre attack chain of course you know you know, where does Dave work? What does Dave do? What's Dave's email domain? Can we create a domain that looks very similar to Dave so that if Dave receives an email from E92+, plus, but the E's got a little fodder over it because it's the Irish alphabet, or it's got, um, instead of a nine, it's a G. You know, if you look, if you create a lookalike domain, send him an email, and then all of a sudden Neil trusts Dave because Dave works at the same place that Neil does, apparently. So this whole, you know, social engineering as an initial incursion is just gone through the roof and and that's unfortunately something that's very difficult to detect yeah and it kind of comes back to that ownership point as well is you can't absolutely own everything around your domain or everything around anything that looks like your domain so when something comes in you know we want to have that that trust and i suppose that kind of ties in with the the zero trust thing it's it's very difficult to be able to completely eliminate trust from it because you have to enable people to be able to get on, to be able to recognize things. Well, obviously being skeptical at the same time, but people just don't necessarily have, have time or, or the ability to be able to go through everything in detail in terms of 
checking every domain going through in terms of email headers people just don't have that knowledge or expertise so we know that's going to be the target so it's a case of making sure that the technology i suppose is supplementing what people need to do from a you know from a, their own their own perspective in terms of what we can help them around kind of you know kind of training and doing that first level that first level check yeah i mean zero trust for us is more of a mindset than a single product and it's uh, there was an old kgb saying i think that broadly translates to you know never trust or verify and that's the concept of zero trust right yeah. Like most things, uh, actually, Zero Trust was invented in the UK. Most great things, should I say, um, like, you know, cellular telephone communications and, and business computers and stuff like that. But, but in 2000 and 2003, um, there was a couple of CISOs, uh, Paul Simmons and um, David Lacey. So Paul from ICI and David from the, the Royal Mail. They came together and they, they formed something called the Open Group, which looked at deprimatization. Sorry, the Jericho Forum which looked at deprimatization, which they then merged into the open group and then eventually became Zero Trust when I think it was Forrester or IDC uh, picked it up. And like most Americans, they called it something really snazzy and people bought it. Um, it was a thing, yeah. It was a thing. But the whole point is, we, you know, if I send you an email and you trust me, then you're going to do something that you wouldn't have done before. Um, yeah. And so what we're trying to do at Cloudflare is where it matters, where it's easy, where it's sensible, reduce the trust, but actually verify. So, you know... Um, in terms of zero trust network access, for example, you know, instead of a VPN, you could just have a direct connection to an application if you trust that person uh, properly because you verified it. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, on email, sorry. So on email, what we're trying to do is, is allow people to get out of the way of people to trust so that they can trust that the emails that come in are actually legitimate because the technology is just filtering out the best of them. Yeah, and I think it's it, it's definitely finding a bit of a balance because I think historically there's been a case of we don't trust our users to be able to do anything because we'll assume that they're going to click on on something something wrong and and the training is based on that. But then on the other hand, zero trust is trying to address the challenge around you know kind of least privilege when sometimes we have too much privilege, especially at the core on things like sysadmins and something where we give them we give them entire access to the all the keys to the network. And actually, rather than having you either trusted or not trusted, um, we need to find, you know, there needs to be a lot more subtlety to that. Well, you know, the, the two traditional technologies that we use to deal with that. So VPNs were invented in 1997, the same year that uh, the DVD was invented. And one year after I joined e Plus, when we were all we were selling was Hummingbird Exceed. Um, yeah. uh, email security dates back from the mid 90s when the Macarena, you know, Macarena was 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 popular. So I think you we're know, learning a lot about your cultural references, Dave. I think. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up if you're if you're um, if you don't know Macarena's a great great song. But those those technologies are old, and that's what people are relying on. They're relying on a VPN to connect to a network because that's where the applications are. Good luck. Yeah, that's it's just insecure and it's expensive. We can fix that. People are relying on email security that's based on spam, and good luck. We can fix that. You know, by other ways. Yeah. Uh, that we happen to make. But the the point being is these are problems that are easy to solve. We just have to think slightly different. Yeah, and I suppose that's one of the one of the challenges as well that I think there was, as well as you're saying, kind of people had uh, assumed such as Bill Gates in terms of the death of spam. There's been lots of references to the death of email as well, you know, and then kind of stuff's going to take over. It's going to be messaging. It's going to be Slack and what have you. So it's one of those challenges, I think, where we've got We've got to use the new technology while understanding that a lot of infrastructure still fundamentally hasn't changed. So there'll be lots of organ. We'll be using email for a long time to go. We've all moved to the cloud, but we've still got our old on-premise mm -hmm. networks, and we still potentially still have 
there are organizations out there obviously still running mainframes and as400s and what have you so it's we the old problems remain they evolve a little bit so it's it's a case of having the new technology that addresses the new threats but while fundamentally accepting that other things just aren't going to be able to change and we need to we need to constantly adapt to to working with them and embracing them yeah i agree but i mean if you, if you're in a personal capacity not a work capacity you you typically use email because you need to authenticate whatever it is you're doing so a bank needs to trust you and a airline needs to trust you and you know an employer needs to trust you if you're applying for a job you can't just you know do that although in china and stuff like that you need reach out for a lot of payments and stuff like that and in africa you could use sms's for payments and stuff yeah. so but email is central to a consumer from a work point of view it's a business tool and a hundred percent of companies and I'll, I'll take a challenge on this but a hundred percent of companies use email and 90 yeah. percent of those companies have moved to office 365 according to gartner or g, g suite or you know a cloud-based alternative the point is it's it's really important, you know, and we're not going to take stuff away from people just because it's insecure. We have to figure out ways to fix it without getting in our way. Yeah. And I think the, the, the kind of the next level and then in terms of kind of understanding those users is who potentially is going to be a target as well. So I think one of the, the, the challenges that we faced is a lot of people who think they're not necessarily going to be the target. Um, do end up being we we know you know kind of we know that kind of CISOs or we know that CFOs or people in finance are obviously going to be going to be targeted. But you talked earlier about reconnaissance. Sometimes that people might not necessarily think, oh, I'm not high profile enough. I don't hold any particular value estate, valuable kind of estate or assets. But increasingly, cyber security, uh, sorry, cyber criminals are are very 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 clever in terms of understanding ways into an organization and it really is a multi-step model that they're not just going to start yeah. with the most important they're not going to go for the kingpin they'll work their way out and they'll go for the softer easy targets to be able to work their way across so it's how organizations can try and communicate that that everyone potentially is a it, you know it can be a target depending on the, the sort of attack well and i'm glad you mentioned that because you know this the whole way that people steal money from companies and trust me google and um google and apple uh, sorry google and facebook had 121 million stolen in a yeah. single in bc yeah, but the whole point is it, it's pretty well known right so back in 2003 kevin mitnick the at the time he was a he was a high profile hacker he's now a, a you know security person but he, he wrote a book called the art of deception in in chapter one in the art of deception it talked about how he hacked a bank with a phone and the way he hacked it was he identified a bank branch that, and somebody within a bank branch that he could build a relationship with. So he identified who in a branch had authority to give them a piece of information. He then developed a relationship with that person. He spent a month or two just, you know, routinely calling them up and pretending that he was from another branch, just asking them what they're having for tea. And, you know, just as a friend, you know, just getting acquainted. So the person trusted him. He groomed them, which is step two in business email compromise. But this was 20 years ago that Kevin did it with a phone. He then took pieces that could, by the way, he was doing this with multiple people. So he then understood what constituted, what elements needed to constitute a, 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 a transfer of money from one bank to another. He then used the relationship he developed with various people to piece these pieces of information together and exchange that information with the person who was responsible for doing a bank transfer. And then he managed to steal money. He got a wire transfer from that bank to him. And that is what he did with a phone in 2020, sorry, in 2003 is exactly what business email compromise is right now. Step one, identify target. Social media, 
or whatever you need to do, create a lookalike domain so that when you send an email or a message or an email typically or a LinkedIn message to that person within that bank that's got probably, you know, a piece of information the attacker needs, groom them. Step two. Step three, exchange the information you need to execute that wire transfer. Step four, steal it. And that stealing can happen in a lot of ways. It could happen as, you know, impersonation. You know, I'm um, with the Facebook, I think it was Facebook and um, Google. It was, it was um, invoices, you know, like, you know, we built up a relationship, you know, now can you pay these invoices? Sure. Yeah, no problem, Bob. That's fine. Because he knew what pieces of information they needed in order to pay that. And they were such a big company, they didn't even notice it. 121 million. It's not bad. Guy served, the guy served five years in prison, but, you know, that's not a bad, not a bad annual rate. <laughs> but yeah, I'm joking. The point being is, though, it hasn't changed. It's just that it's, it's technology now. It's social media. It's, it's um, the creation of lookalike domains. It's smart people convincing people that have just overworked trying to do their job to give them an information and trust them. And yeah. they go and stealing money. That's what you see, basically. <laughs> But those fundamentals have I mean, do we do we not necessarily kind of concentrate that enough on the, the, the human psychology around around for building our cybersecurity strategy? The focus is sometimes a little bit too much on the technology itself. I think these things need to come together. So as you say, I mean phishing awareness is really important, but it's not massively effective because human nature is is to touch stuff, you know, and to you know, we're we're the most wonderful people in a you know, element of the chain, but we're also the weakest link. Uh, as Anne Robinson might say, but yes. um, so that's it. So you need to you need to train people, uh, and I think most people are aware that you know in some of the emails you're saying, "Hi, I'm a Nigerian prince. Could you send me some money?" That they're kind of like maybe not, or you know, um, I, I've decided that I fall in love with you. I don't know you yet, but you know, would you like to send me some money? It's like maybe not. So people are starting to become more and more aware, which is great, right? But they need to. There will always be an occasion that they will click something or do something, no matter how good the training is. So you need to have layers of security that are appropriate for the risk um, yeah. that don't get in their way. Because yeah. if I force you to use a certain email client or force you to use a certain web browser or whatever, it's like. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, normally IT terminology is always created by IT, but it's like, you know, shadow IT was effectively created by users as a way of how can I get around IT? How can I be? It shows people can be creative because if you stop them doing their job, they'll just find another way of a way of doing it. And actually, stuff like cloud technologies, you know, if you're a marketing person and you want previously, if you wanted to run a marketing campaign, you had to kind of organize a server, you had to speak to IT, they had to deploy, it, you had to buy software, you had to install it, you had to set up connectors. Now, if you're running Salesforce, you can just spin up a new instance or you can go to go to marketo you can get everything integrated all the apis are out of the box you probably don't even need to talk to it anymore so people can just always find their find their ways around it so i suppose what are the key things that we need to do to be able to get those users on board one of the key things obviously not not put roadblocks in their way but you know how else can we make sure that users are are bought in um, proactively rather than just, oh, okay, I, I, I promise to not try to click on something that I shouldn't well, do. First of all, we can stop, I mean, and we all use the word, but we can stop using the word users. There's only two industries in the world that use the word users. One's illegal drugs and one, the other one's IT. Uh, you know, these are, these are people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's not, yeah. I'm not, everybody uses it. I, I mentioned it at the start, and then I went back to saying users again. So, you know, I'm as guilty as everyone else. That's okay. I, you know, and, and headcount. I hate headcount. They're heart, they're heart counts. These are human beings, right, that we're dealing with. Quite often, smarter than us old folk, you know. Yeah. 
to be fair. You know, they're often they're very motivated, highly, um, you know, intelligent people that just need to get their jobs done. So we need to, our responsibility in this whole equation is to get the problems out of the way without them bothering them. Yeah. Uh, and that's not by doing it the same way that we've been doing it for 11,000 years, which is creating a castle, putting the good stuff in the castle, and then walls and people to stop, right? Because you build a bigger wall, people build a bigger um, uh, ladder, right? You, you get somebody with a gun, somebody gets somebody with a tank. It just doesn't work. People operate outside the walls. So we need to take a holistic, a holistic approach to security. Adopt the principles of zero trust. Zero trust network access, zero trust web browsing, zero trust email security. You know, and by that I mean is give people what they need once they've proven who they are. Without them, having to do anything yeah so vpns get rid of vpns because people don't like typing stuff in yeah people don't like carrying the fobs around i don't have to carry it around anymore we use zero trust network access yeah. zero trust email security give people email that is known to be clean not known to be bad so adopt us an email security solution that is designed to deal with business email compromise and phishing zero trust web browsing instead of getting somebody to a website how about getting them to a remote browser isolated website? It, but it has to perform as well as it would be, uh, you know, otherwise. So these whole zero trust approach, you know, where you, you're not actually giving people the trust that they that they don't need, you're giving them the stuff that they do. And I suppose that also then helps build confidence. And, I, you know, that can encourage people that they know they're not going to have to just look out for absolutely everything. They don't feel like they're on their own. They're on their own. They're working more in partnership with the IT team. They've got their back effectively, rather than I think they just feel that they're going to be left. And if you do click on something or you do see something bad, then everybody goes, well, you know, you, we had a training program and you clearly didn't pay attention and therefore, you know, this one's on you. I think oh. it creates a more inclusive culture that way. I completely agree. And you mentioned shadow IT a, uh, a short while ago. So instead of looking at shadow IT as a problem, how about we give people access to everything? We give access to everything in a controlled environment. So one of the things that came through COVID was people started to solve problems using shadow IT, right? So you can imagine uh, a week into COVID, um, I've been given a laptop by my, I'm working for a bank, my cons uh, I've been given a laptop, instead of working as a, uh, you know, a, a, a clerk in a, in a bank, I'm given a CSR job for online because, you know, I've got lots of customers that want to access the bank, but they can't go into a bank, right? Okay, so a company's given me a laptop, given me a way to communicate with customers, but probably hasn't caught up with a way of transferring files. So all of a sudden, I'm like, how do I do my job, right? And then along comes my son, who's 10 years old, and he goes, ah, Dad, I can fix that one. Why don't you use WhatsApp? WhatsApp's really good, and it's fast and better still, it's free. So all you've, all you've got is people that are trying to do their best. IT hasn't provided them with tools, and Shadow IT has. So... One of the big movements at the moment is how can you use shadow IT to crowdsource or look at shadow IT as a way of crowdsourcing information technology that's been ideas that have been generated by users? Because if the users generate the ideas, generally they're right. Generally it's a good solution because it's, it sits with the subconscious. Why do we use WhatsApp? It feels right. You know, it, it's wrong, but it feels right. Why don't, do I want to use Skype that's been forced upon me by the company and it's all restrictive and I can't talk to half the people? Ah, I get, I've got a job to do. I've got customers to deal with in my bank. Yeah. And that's the whole point. If you look at shadow IT as a source of crowdsourcing information, then that's, the whole world changes. But you have to put in, places, in place 
security that gets out the way of the user. So yeah. if you're using, I don't know, WeTransfer or whatever, intercept the data and see what's in it. Or if you're using, if you're allowing people to go to, you know, GitHub or, or some sort of a development environment, if that's what their job is, make sure that they can't, you know, upload or download stuff that could be that sensitive or dangerous to the company. Yep. And I think embracing some of those new technologies and, and new platforms and new ways of working that, that kind of the younger workforce are bringing in because, you know, they're going to be the ones that are going to be the business leaders over the next kind of 10 and 20 years. And I think, you know, I think it, it, it's very easy sometimes to be dismissive of people coming in and the assumption that, oh, you know, kind of younger people coming in or they want to work a certain way or they're trying to get out of something or they're, they're trying to do shortcuts. But actually, the whole point is if they're trying to do shortcuts, that's probably because they're smart and they've worked out what a shortcut is to be able to make themselves more effective and productive. So I think we definitely need to find ways of, you know, kind of crowdsourcing that intelligence in terms of what's going to be the next way of, of, of business communication. Because you or me could probably have a chat and go, yeah, this is definitely what's going to happen in the next 10 years. But as you say, our kids are going, we already know what it's going to be. And we're just waiting for you to catch up. Yeah, I mean, and, th and this is a very Nordic way of looking at things. But, you know, the, the ideas in an organization need to come from the people who are actually doing this stuff. And the people at the top need to be the ones to, okay, control budgets, perhaps, um, control compliance, maybe, but just get the rocks out of the way of the people that need to get stuff done. And, and I mean, when I joined ENA 26 years ago, things like SAP and Oracle and all these big projects that people would spend hundreds of millions of pounds on would be, would be bought by the people at the top of the organization. But the people at the bottom, they had very little say at all. And that's the reason why, for example, the National Programme for IT under Richard Grange had um, crashed and burned in 2009 because the doctors didn't want to use it. You know, they were, it was designed by some bureaucrats. It cost 11 billion pounds. It's the largest IT project in the world at the time. So yes. you have to engage the users and listen to them. Otherwise, they'll just go and use WhatsApp. Absolutely. Yes, they will. And I think for us as a channel, I think that's one of the most kind of valuable things we, we can do. We probably don't do enough. Maybe there's too much focus on technology. It's getting out into organizations and making sure that we're talking to everybody and not just talking to the IT people. And maybe, you know, is that one of the things I always felt is that one of the things that the channel should be doing more of kind of driving that engagement with, with you know, with end user organizations, with customers in terms of making sure that it kind of building those constructive conversations, building those, those open sessions where everybody can get involved, everybody can have a conversation and, and working, building that security culture from, from the ground up. So it doesn't, it's obviously not just about, it's not just about technology sale or even consultancy. It's about driving that engagement and bringing best practice and examples. We always talk about best practice. It's not best practice, it's just stories. It's just like, it's stories that other people have done that have been successful or interesting. And that's what people respond to. They mm. don't tend to respond to white papers. They don't always respond to complex solution briefs. There's always good stuff in them. But actually, it's the stories that are the ones that engage us. And that's how people go, oh, okay, right, I get that now. Yeah. I understand. That's, that's how we can communicate best. Yeah, I mean, uh, wouldn't it be great if, I mean, if I, was a, if I was in a channel, I'd probably consider starting some kind of consultancy around that. I'd be asking people who do stuff, how can we create a kind of workplace that helps you get your stuff done? How can, how can we create a workplace that's more in line with your values as, 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 a, as a person? You know, um, do you care about the climate? Do you care about, um, you know, where, where, you know, your supply chain and how that impacts people and so on and so forth? And what will come out of that will be a lot of really good ideas. And those ideas then need to translate into actions. Actions will be underpinned by security best practice, I guess. 
uh, there's certain technologies that can help. But it probably, you probably get a lot more honest and unfiltered answer in it if you create a safe space for people to talk rather than leaders to talk. Yeah. And I think that we know that big changes are, are, are capable. I think, if, you know, one of the lessons definitely from the last two years has shown us that if we absolutely need to make big changes, then, then we can do it. And I think it's it's I think one of the things that kind of IT um, should be should be proud of and, and cybersecurity as well. I mean, we know, you know, big issues do happen. And, and you know, it, obviously, we know a lot of organizations have been bricked. But by and large, the last two years, the IT channel have enabled organizations to undergo incredibly massive changes, phenomenal digital transformation to be able to keep organizations just literally alive, functionally working. And I think it's easy to underestimate that. So we can we can do it. Um, and I think we just be, need to be confident enough and just make sure that we take everybody everybody with us when we're when we're doing that journey. I mean, it is true that, you know, COVID has accelerated digital transformation. It's like the third, was it the fourth C-suite, you know, CIO, CTO and COVID. And you know, it's, it's accelerated digital transformation, work from home, work hybrid work, and we use some more cloud, more mobile, that sort of thing. But, and the channels played a very important part in that. But now we're post, no, we're not post COVID, but we're post the major impact of COVID. Yeah. Where do we go? Uh, you know, how can we create a better world for our employees and how can we just make them safe? You know, and, and those pieces are in place, right? But the problem, I guess, is that we're also facing a economic climate that isn't likely to you know allow major investments in in speculative stuff so everything we do needs to be accompanied by a very strong uh, return on investment and i'm i'm happy to say there's there's a number of initiatives around that so for example the fair institute and uh, which is a quantitative, quantitative analysis of um security investment in pound terms yeah dollars or euros depending where you come from uh, and then at, at full uh, at, at, um i don't know at, at cloudflare we've we've really focused on return on security investment. So yes. whenever we start to make, you know, offer our larger customers, um, you know, consolidation type approaches, it's usually accompanied by uh, a pound uh, number at the end that they will save if they do something. And, yeah. and that is a collaborative discussion that we have with the company. Because yeah. it is too easy to think of security just as being insurance, but the, you know, from kind of where we touched on the importance of security not stopping uh, people doing their job. If it enables productivity, mm. then it absolutely is a. It's a business enabler. It enables organisations to be more effective, to be more dynamic, and to be more confident because mm. they've got the right processes, they've got the right security layers in place, and therefore they are able to to recognise ROI from their investment. Yeah. And what's the opportunity cost of not doing something? For example, I mean, the way that CIOs typically look at it is they don't look at the detail. They look at the fact that Neil's costing fifteen thousand pounds a year for in all of IT because they just take that total sum of IT cost and divide it by the number of users. So, what can we do to reduce that? What can we do to make it safe so that the risk? In fact, no. What can we do to reduce it? Because the reduction is a function of the reduction in risk of something bad happening um, and GDPR breaches and stuff like that. So. Um, I mean, the thing is, we're also facing, unfortunately, a climate where the cost of something happening is, is gone through the roof as well. We've seen a massive increase in ransomware. I mean, every type of email that comes in from a bad person is a phishing attack. I mean, it has been since 2023. But the purpose of it against humans, you know, like um, we talked about social engineering the last couple of years since post-COVID. Well, I mean, ransomware has just gone through the roof. I mean, you know, the ENISA, um, uh, sorry, the European Union and ENISA, I believe it is, put out a list of risks um, and the highest risk that they have in IT is ransomware. 
because the average cost of well, the average cost of business email compromise in ransomware around about five million. Yeah. You know that that could bring a company to its knees. I mean, there was a dentist surgery. I think they had about a hundred dentist surgeries in Holland that got attacked by ransomware uh, a couple of months ago, and it, it was like it's like two million, and they paid it. Yeah. it they, they acknowledge that they paid. Hardly anybody acknowledges they pay anything because the insurance companies won't let them. I mean, look at the HSC in Ireland. You know, the poor, poor guys in Ireland, you know, they, they lost everything. The health and safety executive, pretty yeah. much every IT system in Irish healthcare was affected by this ransomware attack. It was insane. You know, the, the cost, the, there was an old saying, you know, why do you rob banks, Mr. Bank Robber? Well, that's where the money yeah. is, right? And yeah. So the the malware sites, the, the, the people that have, you know, do this stuff, they've pretty much flipped over to ransomware. And business email compromise. I mean, business email compromise. The FBI estimated it's forty-six million. I think back in two. Sorry, forty-six billion was the total cost of ransomware since two thousand and sixteen. I think so. In six years, so we're looking at seven billion a year. Yeah. Just ransomware. Sorry, excuse me. Just business email compromise. Yeah. So I don't know. You know, forcing people, uh, convincing people to send them money for invoices that don't exist, or um, so and so forth. So it's just a lot of money. Isn't There's it? a lot of yeah, very rich criminals out there. There are, and, and they follow the same principle of what's the best return on investment. And ransomware is undoubtedly the most lucrative because yep. it, it can be it can be highly targeted and highly profitable, but it can also be entirely indiscriminate, which again removes that. Am I? Could I be a target? Everyone's a target when they can be when they can be as broad as they possibly can be um, without needing to do. Sometimes it's in depth social engineering, and sometimes it's a it's a smishing attack to a thousand random mobile, no, million random mobile numbers that they that they bought somewhere off some, you know, dumped, uh, dumped data dump. Well, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, here at Cloudflare, we, we make a system that is called Cloudflare Area 1 that is designed the express purpose of, of identifying um, uh, email attacks on a, an organization before they have ever existed in the wild. So we want to try and get left of breach. And I was chatting with um, a, a CISO um, just last week, and he was talking about how, you know, saying, well, look, you know, we put you after Office 365 ATP, you know, E580P, and we found about 20, about 25% of the stuff that we found was not found by Office 365 ATP. Yeah. And it's because of the way we do it. I won't go into too much detail, but the way we do it. So I was kind of like, well, how many emails do you need to get a ransomware? And he goes, one. All I need is one attack to slip through, and that's what matters. Here at Cloudflare, the way the approach that we've taken at a very high level is we scan the entire internet. That's eight billion things on the internet every uh, every week. It's the second largest crawling network in the world. And what we do is we take that information and then we apply advanced machine learning, artificial intelligence to help understand. You know, is somebody's coming in? Is it from E92 or E with a fodder dot nine two or is it is it something that looks like the domain what's the context of what they're sending in is there something in there that sounds fishy is there a link that perhaps they're sending in that maybe that link might change over time and push over to a, a malware site so you know that what we're trying to get to and we, we have a one in 500 uh, sorry one in five million false positive rate is no bad stuff on the email so people can just trust it yeah that's a good starting point so mm. Smashing! I think we've covered uh, an absolutely incredible number of number of topics. Um, really appreciate your time. Thank Nice you. to end with. 
one single takeaway. So if there's one thing that you'd think organizations or somebody listening, right, what is the one thing I need to do? I've probably got a million things to do on my list now, but what should be the one thing at the top of the list that they should do next in terms of reviewing their cybersecurity strategy or talking to their customers about their cybersecurity strategy? Uh, go to zerotrustroadmap.org, which is our website, where we put a vendor agnostic, yes, we include competitors, um, rundown of how Zero Trust approach can help in a number of ways, some of which we can help with, some of which we can't. Zerotrustroadmap.org. Perfect. Taking it from being a, a nice theoretical concept to what can I actually do? That's what it needs to be practical or people aren't going to be able to embrace it fully. Well, that's absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much, Dave, for your time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Neil. It's great to speak with you. Okay, speak to you soon. Thank you. Take care.